Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org. You our worship by looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is our sermon series that we're going through right now. We're looking at the book of Hebrews and how Jesus is better. You can find Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 on page 1002 in the Blue Pew Bibles. If there's not a Pew Bible in front of you, we've got some right behind that pole and that nice-looking gentleman with glasses in the back. He can wave if you need Bibles. We also have red Pew Bibles. Those are uh, larger print Bibles, and the text is on page 1188 in our large print Bibles. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. While you're turning there, just a couple of things I want to remind you of. First of all, uh, you may have seen the announcement going through before worship began. We normally have a game night the first Friday of every month, but due to extenuating circumstances, we're not going to have one in August, so we're sorry. We'll pick back up in September, so be on the lookout for that day. Also, just as a reminder, we have our family meal after worship today, so please plan to join us. Even if you didn't bring anything, that's totally okay. We want to be with you. And then finally, we have in the back uh, both blank notebooks that you can use to take sermon notes on. We'd love for you to take one of these. Use it for sermon notes, use it for prayer requests, whatever. This is our gift to you. Uh, We would love to see you uh, writing down the things that the Lord is teaching you and challenging you with in the sermons and in the text and in worship. And we also have cards in the back in case you want to invite anybody. On the front, it has uh, our address, our contact information, our service times. And on the back, it has a QR code, which will take people to more information about the church. It's a great way to invite people to church. It's a great way to open up conversation with anybody that you may be working with. Now that you've had the opportunity to turn to Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, please stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to te- to testify <coughs> excuse me to the things that were to be spoken later but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope Father, we pray that you would be with us as we look at this text. Help us to understand what it is that you're teaching us in this text. Help us to understand how Jesus is better than Moses. Help us not only to comprehend this in our minds, but to hide the truth of the gospel in our hearts and to work out with our hands the truths that this text brings to us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Does anybody know what our national motto is? Oh, good, you do. In God we trust. 
It's on our money. It's uh, on our money. It's on our money. If you look at money, you will see that motto. It's also on some state flags. But the question becomes, do we as a nation actually believe this motto? Do we believe, do we trust in God as a nation? If we don't trust in God, then the question becomes, who do we trust in? Because all around us, people are telling us who to trust in other than God. Trust in yourself, trust in the system, trust in whatever the case may be, the joys that are brought about by things. And if we believe those and stop trusting in God, whatever replaces God is not better. See, many things could fill in the blank of what do we trust in, but none will satisfy the way that Christ does. We often talk about Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This single verse that so easily sums up the gospel, the wages of sin is death, the things that we do, everything that we can do, everything that we can dream of or accomplish is death can't earn us anything, can't deserve us anything, gives us nothing in the eyes of the Lord to present to him. And if that was the end of the verse, then it would not be a very happy verse. For the wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the verse. We have this beautiful conjunction. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. God gives us a gift, not something we've earned, not something we've deserved, not something we could ever be worthy of. He gives us eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus brings contentment. And so while our national motto is, in God we trust, probably the practical application of our national motto is, in myself I trust, in my money I trust, in my position I trust, in anything else I trust. And if there's anything but God in after, in this I trust, then we won't be content or happy. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to remind his audience of. Now, context is... King, good. I say that every week, try to remind us that when we open up the word, we need to understand who wrote the book, who they wrote it to, what that was the purpose of the book, because we read poetry very differently than we read prophecy or than we read prose. The book of Hebrews is written by an unknown author to a Jewish Christian audience. We know that because of the way that he talks, particularly in chapter 10, but this audience is exhausted. This audience is tempted. This audience is at the end of their rope. And they're tempted to go back to Judaism because all you have to do in Judaism is just keep the rules. And there's no persecution because it's been more established. And so over and over and over again, throughout the book of Hebrews, this author is trying to show us that Jesus is better than anything else, but especially better than going back to Judaism. Because Judaism isn't the complete story. 
It's the anticipation of Christ, but it stops there. Christianity goes and sees Christ fulfill those things. The ESV Study Bible, in looking at this section, tells us that the author has already shown in chapter 1 and 2 that Jesus is better than the mediators of the Mosaic Covenant, the angels. Remember, we've talked about how Jesus is better than the angels. And now, starting in chapter 3, he turns away from the angels and to Moses, the actual author of that covenant, and shows us how Jesus is better than Moses himself. Because if you remember the context, these Jews would have had a high, high regard for Moses. And so today we're going to look at these verses, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see that while Moses was a great servant, somebody definitely worthy of honor, the author wants us to consider Jesus and how Jesus is better. So let's start by looking at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Wow, there is so much in those very few words. The author begins, and for the first time in Hebrews, he turns and addresses his audience. He says, therefore, holy brothers, he's confronting them. He's spurring them to action, not by convicting them or telling them how bad they is, but instead telling them, we have to believe. We have to trust in this Jesus who is better. He has turned to them and spurring them on to action. He's telling them that our faith is not passive. We don't sit around once we come to faith and just wait for the end. We trust And we do the things that God calls us to. Notice, too, that the author calls them holy, which points back to chapter 2, verse 11. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ calls us brothers. We are holy Because of God, because of Christ's sacrifice, just as Christ is holy. We are sanctified, that is, being made perfect, being made more like Jesus because of Jesus' blood. For the wages of sin is death. We can't do anything on our own, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We were bought with a price. And because we were bought with a price, because we are children of the Lord, because we are brothers of Jesus, we can be addressed as holy. Not that we're perfect, not that we've earned or deserved anything, but that we are holy because of Jesus and his work. And not just that, but we're holy brothers. Again, chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that we're connected to Jesus. We're a part of the holy fellowship of God's adopted children, those who are unified with Jesus. So as holy brothers, the author turns to us and says, you share in a heavenly calling. The calling on our life begins in heaven and has heaven as its its goal. It begins with the Lord and has the Lord and his glory as its goal. Remember, context is, and the author is writing to people who are tempted, people who are tired, Believers who feel like they're at the end. And he's encouraging them to remember that our security is in heaven. 
And it is secured by Jesus' blood. Not our works, not the things we do. Jesus has done what we can't do. And so by calling them holy brothers and telling them that we share in this heavenly calling, he's reminding them that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done and drawn us in and called us to himself. Our salvation from the beginning to the end is all about grace. It's all about the gift of the Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the author addresses these people lovingly. He does it plainly, not using fancy language. He doesn't berate them on the fact that they are tempted and tired and wanting to turn back. Instead, he reflects on the character of Jesus, which also reflects on the character of the Father. He tries to draw them in. He knows they're worn out. He knows they're tired. He knows they're tempted. And he's reminding them that they have security, they have hope, they have joy and contentment in Jesus. And then he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, he's drawn them in, and he says, consider Jesus. Hearing Jesus' name would have drawn them back. Remember, they're Jewish believers, so they trust in Jesus. And hearing Jesus' name, they would think back to Jesus. He's the one who lived for us. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who rose from the grave, defeating death for us. He is the one who has ascended for us. And he is the one who is right now, then and now, praying for us, interceding on our behalf. The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 21 says this, who is the redeemer of God's elect? And the answer is the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Consider Jesus who is God and became man and did what we couldn't do so that we have hope. Consider Jesus when we're tired. Consider Jesus when we're tempted. Consider Jesus. He is the one who loved us from eternity past, not because we are sharp dressers, not because we do good things, not because we have great voices, he loved us because he loved us, period. Not because of what we've earned, not because of what we deserve. Consider Jesus, the one who lived, died, rose, ascended, and is now praying for us. The author wants all focus to be on Jesus. The audience is tired and beat down and persecuted and worn out. And if they trust in their own strength and their own ability and their own knowledge and wisdom and those things, they are going to fail. And so he is lovingly and gently reminding them, consider Jesus. Don't forget your Savior. Later on, he's going to tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
So then he goes on in verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. It's interesting because in the book of Hebrews, apostle only refers to Jesus. And it's used to emphasize that Jesus was sent by the Father and is the messenger of peace who fulfills God's redemption. Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 1. One page back. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. As you consider Jesus, remember he was the one sent by the Father. Remember he was the one that brought the message of hope. Remember, he is the one that fulfills God's redemption all throughout Scripture. And we're going to see this uh, as we continue to look at the book of Hebrews. And we saw it a couple years ago as we looked at the overarching story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. As God makes promises to his people from the beginning of Scripture all the way up to Jesus, they build on one another. He starts in the garden by promising Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 that a Savior would come. And then we see Noah and Abraham and David and, and all the promises that he makes and Moses as he goes along, and they stack on one another. It's not like, okay, I promised that, but we're going to write that off and we're going to start with this new one. No, he keeps those promises that he's already made, and he keeps making them. And Jesus is the one who fulfills them all. Jesus is the one who answers them all. Jesus, the apostle and high priest, obeyed God. Adam, in the garden, fell. He did not obey God. But Jesus, who we see uh, in the New Testament referred to as the second Adam, did obey God. Jesus paid our debt, gave us the gift of eternity. He intercedes for us. He is praying for us. Our apostle and high priest did what we couldn't do, paid the debt that we owed, and even now loves us so much that he is interceding on our behalf. Moses was sent to Pharaoh to bring God's people out of bondage and slavery, a physical bondage and slavery, and into the promised land as God's people. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, God tells Moses, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now we fast forward and Jesus is sent to us bringing us not out of physical slavery, but out of spiritual bondage. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the one who did what we couldn't do and gives us what we can't get. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Remember, the author is talking to those who have already made a commitment to the Lord, reminding them of how great God is and that they should not go back. And so he starts in verse 1 with this powerful opening, drawing them in, speaking to them directly, and begging them to consider Jesus. 
Then starting in verse 2, we get this imagery that he brings around of a house in order to help them to try to understand why Jesus is better than Moses. Now, Moses was unique. Moses was uh, a person that was different from others. In Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, we read this. Hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so. With my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Moses was spoken to directly by God. He was unique. He was amazing in the eyes of these Jewish believers. And Moses, like Jesus, fulfilled the role that he was given. He went and he he got the people out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land had its difficulties along the way, but he led them through that as well. And because of that, in Jewish thought, Moses was incredibly influential. And so verse 2 says, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. The point that the author is making here is that Jesus, consider Jesus, who is faithful to the Lord, just like Moses was faithful. So the author knows that they have a high regard for Moses and that Moses was faithful and Moses did the things that he was called to do. But the author is saying Jesus also did what he was called to do. And then verses 3 and 4 expand this even more. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so Moses is great. Moses fulfilled his purpose. Moses did what he was supposed to do. Moses was unique, and Moses was spoken to by God. Jesus was also faithful. And as great as Moses was, Jesus is better. How much better? He's, he's so much more better as the difference between the one who builds the house and the one who serves in the house. He receives that much more glory than Moses. Now we need to stop for just a second and recognize that the author here is not saying Moses is not good. The author here is not saying, you know, you like Moses, but he's not really that great a guy. Jesus is better. What the author is doing is he's saying, yes, Moses was amazing. God spoke to Moses. Moses was unique in the history of God's people. And he deserves the honor and glory that he has been given. Jesus, though, deserves far more. Now, this... This, this would probably blow their minds. There's uh, historical documents and plays that talk about how Moses sometimes was depicted even as the king of the Jews with a, a crown and a scepter in certain plays and things like that. That's how important he was to them and to their history. And he's still important. The, the author of Hebrews is not saying Moses is not important. He's just saying Jesus is more important. Jesus is better. Jesus, as the builder of the house, gets the honor. Not Moses, not the one who serves in the house. Now this imagery of a house is very interesting and very important because the idea of a house is is the picture of the church. Look with me. We're going to fast forward here to verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. 
And so this house that he's using as an image, this house that he's building, is the church. This is important because this goes back to the Old Testament. You remember we talked about those covenants that God is building on. Well, the covenant he made with David was that one day a son would come along who would build a house for God. (coughs) And that there would be a son of David who would sit on the throne forever. And like the other covenants, this is partially fulfilled in Solomon, David's son, who was a king, who did build the temple. But it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who built God's house, that is, the church. And who is the king who sits on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7 is where we see this covenant made with David. And verse 13 is where we get this specific command. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This started with Solomon and the temple, but gets its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and the church. Jesus fulfills the covenant promise that God made to David. Christ is the faithful culmination of all of God's promises. As those covenants build one on the other, Jesus is the one that fulfills them. Genesis 3.15, in handing out the punishments for sin, the proto-evangelion, we talked about this before, proto meaning first, evangelion, the Greek word for gospel. The first gospel happens when God is handing out the punishments for sin by telling us that a Savior will come. And that Savior is Jesus. And verses 3 and 4 remind us that Jesus is not only a man, but he's also God. They tell us that he's the builder in verse 3, and that God is the builder in verse 4, and so Jesus is God. Jesus fulfills the covenant promise. Jesus builds this house. Jesus builds the church through his faithful actions. And while Moses was a servant in the house of God, someone who was highly venerated because of what he did in his faithful service, Jesus is the one who built the house of God and is worth so much more glory. And then we move to verse 5 and 6, where he wraps up this section. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Moses was faithful as a servant. Jesus is faithful as a son. Moses even spoke about Jesus. Verse 5 says, Moses talks about the things that are to come. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, we read, uh, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. This ultimately comes to its fruition in Jesus. Moses, as a servant, was speaking of Jesus who was coming and who would be better and who would fulfill in the ways that Moses couldn't. Jesus is better than Moses. 
And it's interesting, too, that not only does this house imagery represent the church, but it's also temper, temple and tabernacle language. Remember the, in the Old Testament, the temple, or the tabernacle first, which was the movable tent, and then the temple were the households of God. They were where God was on earth. Now we are the temple. But that, that was a very important place for God's people. And that temple tabernacle language here and elsewhere in the New Testament, is applied to the people of God. We are God's house. We are God's temple. We are God's tabernacle, his dwelling place. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul is speaking about how we are one in Christ there, and how we are God's dwelling place. That language of the house is meant to show us that Jesus establishes the church and that we are that church, the house of the Lord. Excuse me. David McWilliams in his commentary says this, Among the people of God, Jesus is faithful high priest, superior to Moses and all who preceded him. Therefore, when the writer describes his readers as his house, there is an implied call to faithfulness, perseverance, and submission to his lordship. You remember our context. We have an author speaking to Jewish Christians who are at the end of the rope, who are tired, who are tempted to leave, to turn back to Judaism, and to leave Jesus. And in speaking of Jesus as our faithful high priest, in talking about us as the house that he built, as the church for God, he is implying that we, as believers, have a call to faithfulness, perseverance, and submission to Jesus. Because Jesus has done what we could not do. Now, Hebrews, throughout the rest of the book, we're going to hit all these, will go on to show us how some of these things played out. How are we faithful? How do we persevere? How do we submit to the Lord's Lord or to God's lordship? In chapter 3 verse 13, Hebrews will tell us to exhort one another. In chapter 4 verse 9, Hebrews will tell us to act as members of the people of God. In chapter 6 verse 10, it will tell us to serve the saints. And in chapter 10 verses 24 and 25, it will tell us consider how we can stir one another up towards love and good deeds and how we can meet together to encourage one another. McWilliams goes on to say, this, this text will not permit a low view of God's church. We are called to be committed members of a local body and to faithfully attend to the means of grace in public worship. By talking about the house and how we are the church, the house of God, he's telling us that we have not only the great privilege of being God's sons and daughters, of being brothers and sisters of Jesus. But we have the great joy of fulfilling the commands that the Lord has given us. And he's also telling us that God has a high view of the church. That as the author talks about what the church is, what this house is, there's an implication of faithfulness, perseverance, and submission to the Lord. And this text will not permit us to view God's church in a low manner. Instead, it raises up God's church. 
It shows us how Christ has given us the church. While Moses served as a part of God's house, Christ built God's house, and we are that house. And we are called to be committed to faithfully attend to the means of grace in public worship. Dare I say, to be a covenant family of hope. People who trust in the word, who love one another, and who share the gospel and all that we are called to do. And then the author in this section wraps up in verse 6 by giving us both a warning and encouragement. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Just like in chapter 2, where we were reminded that uh, our faith is not a passive faith, that we are not to neglect the salvation that the Lord has given us, not that we earn, but the Lord has given us. Here, too, we're told to hold fast to our confidence in Jesus. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. And we're going to go on to find out Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. And hold fast to those things. Because when our confidence in Christ is weakened, then our hope also will be weakened. If we feel hopeless, like these brothers and sisters did, it's probably because we have lost sight of the fact that Jesus is better. And so in verses 1 through 6, the author calls these people back. You of low hope, you who are tired and tempted and at the end of your rope, You've forgotten how great Jesus is. Consider him. Consider the author and perfecter of our faith. Consider the one who has built the church. Consider the one who has given us what we can't have for ourselves. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. So the author of Hebrews is challenging these worn out, tired, exhausted believers to consider Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but every time we talk about the context, every time we talk about the audience that this letter was written to, I can relate. We said a couple of weeks ago that we all deal with stress in different ways, and I, I jokingly used to say, I believe we should change the name of our nation to the United States of Tired, because then when people ask us how we are, we can say we're tired and be patriotic and truthful at the same time. We feel that fraying. We feel that fatigue. We feel that temptation to turn. And so how do we apply this text to our lives? What is it in this text that helps us to consider Jesus? Well, the alternatives to Christ are always going to seem attractive. We said our motto is, in God we trust, and yet most people in our nation function in a different way. That God space is filled with something else, in money I trust, in position I trust, in power I trust, in whatever I trust. And the alternatives to Jesus seem attractive. The law seems attractive because if we can just obey it, then we know we're good. And we have control over our obedience, and so there's a draw to that. Well, not just that, but selfishness feels good. Man, if I could just do what I wanted to and be saved, if I was the king of all things, that'd be awesome, because then all my life would be joy. That has a draw. 
But all of those things leave us empty. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26 says this, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Matthew's asking that question. If you could have everything but Jesus, do you really have anything? John Brown, uh, a commentator from a long time ago, said, It is because we think so little and to so little purpose on Christ that we know so little about him that we love him so little, that we trust in him so little, that we so often neglect our duty, that we are so much influenced by things seen and temporal, and that we are so little influenced by things unseen and eternal. It is because men do not know Christ that they do not love him. It is because they know him so imperfectly that they love him so imperfectly. This is what the author of Hebrews is trying to draw us into. He's trying to show us that when you're at the end of the rope, when you've forgotten that Jesus is better, run to Jesus. And so as we consider Jesus, as the author of Hebrews tells us to, as we consider what he's done for us, as he consider the house that he's built for us, the church that he's put us in, We are drawn into his presence and into obedience to his commands. Some ways that we can love more, some ways that we can pursue Christ and and see how he is better, some ways, not always, are to live on the word preached and read. Brothers and sisters, this is your lifeblood. And i got to be honest, so many of us have very dusty covers on our Bibles. So many of us have Bibles that you could write on. So many of us don't open this, but this gives life. And while it gives life now during the sermon and during worship, it also gives life every day as you read it and study it and grow in your understanding of Jesus as you consider Jesus. But we should not just read the Word. We're also called to gather with God's people for worship. We're also called to serve one another. We're also called to pray and praise the Lord daily. We're called to beware of being self-centered and instead to consider Jesus and focus on Him, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember, this text will not permit a low view of Jesus or of God's church. We're called to do these things faithfully, not to earn, not to deserve, but instead in response to the gloriousness that is Jesus. Our national motto is, in God we trust. And despite this not being true for many, the author of Hebrews wants it to be true for us. The author of Hebrews wants us to consider Jesus. So when you're tired, when you're worn out, when you don't feel like faith is giving you anything, 
consider Jesus. Read his word. Understand who he is and that he is better than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, it is not easy for us to consider Jesus regularly. Everything around us in society and in this world reminds us of all the other things we could have. But as Hebrews keeps telling us, Jesus is better. So Father, we pray that you would help us to consider Jesus. You would help us to dive into your word, to love your word, to grow in your word, to understand better who this Jesus is. We pray that you would help us to gather as your people, as your covenant family of hope for worship. We pray that you would help us to pray daily and to praise you daily, to serve one another, to watch out for the ways that we sin, and to fix our eyes on Jesus. Father, Jesus truly is better. And we pray that that would be the reality of our lives. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.